0: Hello, and welcome to the Interesting Bits podcast with me, Justin Pollard. The Interesting Bits is an attempt to delve into the stories of some of history's underdogs, the forgotten majority who never became historical celebrities, but played their part nonetheless. The Interesting Bits is here to tell the stories of the mad, bad, stupid, wonderful, odd and improbable things that happened to our ancestors. They have no greater meaning, no direction, no overarching theme beyond being, I hope, worthy of note. Perhaps even memorable, and reminding us that the past was as daft as the present, and the people of the past were as daft as us. That's what actually links us. Hello, and welcome to the Interesting Bits. In this two-part special, I thought we'd celebrate the start of filming on Season 3 of Netflix's Valhalla with some Viking stories. Known for their robust attitude towards foreign policy and epic mythology, the term Viking loosely refers to the Nordic seafaring people of Scandinavia between the 8th and 11th centuries CE. Being widely acknowledged as highly mobile mariners and navigators, the Vikings also had a fearsome reputation as raiders and colonisers, terrorising the coastlines of northern Europe and even reaching as far west as Newfoundland in modern-day Canada. But how did the Vikings dominate the seas for so many centuries? How did they navigate them? How can we tell if famous Viking heroes from the sources are real or just mythological? And most importantly, how did they get such terrifyingly brilliant names as Eric Bloodaxe or Ivar the Boneless? Let's start with some navigation. The Vikings provide some of the earliest concrete records of people wanting to know what lay at the bottom of the sea. Viking sailors had a practical interest in knowing what was on the bottom as this sometimes came up to meet them rather suddenly in the form of reefs and rocks. To avoid these dangers, they invented the Sounding Weight, a lead cylinder with a hollowed out end filled with something sticky like beeswax. The weight was attached to the line and dropped overboard. When it hit the bottom, the rope could be hauled in, the depth being measured by counting the number of arm spans of rope pulled up. The arm span of an average sailor became a standardised measurement of six foot, or one fathom as sailors called it. The wax on the end of the weight was useful, as by looking at what was stuck to it, you could get an idea of what the bottom was made of. This helped with choosing good anchorages and preventing raiding parties ending up high and dry on the rocks at low tide and hence outstaying their welcome. This could also happen to the English when they tried to emulate Viking tactics. During 896, six Viking ships began raiding the Isle of Wight and the Dorset shore using their usual hit-and-run tactics to loot local settlements. So bad was this raiding that it was brought to the attention of King Alfred and he ordered a squadron of nine of his new ships to intercept and destroy them. Patrolling down the coast, they found the Vikings in an estuary on the south coast. Three of the enemy ships were drawn up on land whilst their crews raided inland. The other three were still afloat, however, and when they saw the English take up a position blocking their escape route out of the estuary, they attacked. Initially, the battle went very well for Alfred's fleet, and the first two enemy ships were boarded and their crews killed. Whilst attacking the third vessel, however, the heavier English ships, with their deeper draught, ran aground, leaving a remaining skeleton crew of just five men on the third Viking vessel to escape with their ship. It was at this moment that the three other pirate crews began returning to their ships and the English suddenly found themselves in a precarious situation. Three of their vessels were stuck fast on the same side of the estuary as the Vikings while the other six had grounded on the far bank and were unable to help. As the tide fell, the Vikings saw their opportunity. If they had to fight, they weren't going to wait until the other six English ships could join so they waded through the thick mud towards the three stricken English vessels. Firstly, they would pick off these crews, then wait to see what time and tide brought to them. For the English trapped on board, there was nothing for it but to fight, and nothing for their compatriots on the other bank to do but watch. The Battle of the Riverbank was fierce and bloody, with one of Alfred's officials and a member of his household losing their lives. In total, 62 English sailors lost their lives in the fight, compared to 120 Vikings but by the time the English had the upper hand, the tide had risen far enough to refloat the light of Viking ships, and their crews used the opportunity to escape, whilst Alfred's ships were still stuck fast. We can only imagine the jibes shouted across the water as the pirates slipped away, although any triumphalism on their part would prove premature. With severely depleted and injured crews, two of the vessels foundered on the Sussex coast and were washed ashore where their occupants were captured only one of the raiders limped home safely to East Anglia. All of which brings us on to navigation methods. So, how exactly did Vikings find places to raid? Or more distant lands like Iceland, Greenland and North America, which sit an awful lot of nautical miles from Scandinavia? We know that the Vikings had reached Iceland by 874, when Ingolfa Arnason is recorded as building his homestead in Reykjavik. And we know that the descendants of those early Icelanders went on to travel yet further west to Greenland, and even Newfoundland. The question is, how? The answer, it would appear, are with a bird, a board, and a lump of stone, the Viking equivalent of satnav. Of course, the Vikings were very good with ships and could easily navigate in sight of land by just using landmarks and their knowledge of the coasts, shoals, rocks and harbours. Setting out across the open sea was another matter. Floki Vilgathason, who the Icelandic Book of Settlements credit as being the first person to deliberately set out for Iceland, navigated using ravens. When he reached the Faroe Islands, he took three ravens on board and headed off in the rough direction of Iceland. After a while, he let a raven go, which flew up until it could see much further over the horizon than Floki could, at which point it spotted the pharaohs and promptly flew back home. Sometime later, he set another raven free, which flew up, had a look around and promptly returned back to the deck, indicating that they were now really quite a long way from the land. Finally, he let the third raven go, which flew up, spotted Iceland in the far distance and headed off there. Floki gratefully followed. But there is a more technical means of navigation mentioned in the history of the home of the ravens, the pharaohs. That is the sun shadow board, or Solskugafjöl. This was used to determine latitude by measuring the height of the sun over the horizon at noon. It was a circular wooden board, about 250 to 300 millimetres in diameter, with a nomen at its centre, the height of which could be set to the time of the year, as the sun is lower in the sky at noon in the winter than in the summer. To keep it level, the board was placed in a bucket of water. Next, the shadow of the noon sun was observed. A concentric circle on the board gave the line the shadow should reach if the ship was on the desired latitude. If the shadow was beyond the line, the ship was north of the latitude. If inside, the ship was south of it. So by checking the noonday shadow reached the same circle, you could ensure you were going due east or west. Of course, you needed to know when noon was so you should start making measurements around noon and start marking the position of the shadow on the board. The point where the shadow is shortest, and hence the sun is highest in the sky, would be noon. The final method of navigation is a shade more contentious. One of the sagas mentions an instant which must have been typical of northerly navigations. Navigation required knowing where the sun is and this can be tricky under leaden, snowy skies. When King Olaf asked the hero Sigurd to manage this feat in the saga, Sigurd grabbed a sunstone and correctly estimated where the sun must be by looking through it. Just what this sunstone is has long baffled historians, and it has often been dismissed as a magical device. However, it has been noted by archaeologists for some time that some forms of calcite, notably Icelandic spar, have polarising properties, so perhaps these were the basis of real sunstones. They noted that calcite can variably polarise light depending on the orientation of the crystal. At one particular point, however, known as the isotropy point, the crystal eliminates all polarisation. This property was exploited by physicists at the University of Rennes 1 who noted that at this point, if the calcite is then suddenly moved from the line of sight, a faint yellow streak known as Hadinger's brush is briefly visible. This polarisation artefact in the eye rather conveniently points directly towards where the hidden sun is. Proof of concept is not, of course, proof of use, and to date no Icelandic spar has been found in Viking nautical contexts, although, to be fair, no one has looked for it. Calcite has been found on later vessels, however, hinting perhaps at the antiquity of the technique. Perhaps Leif Erikson owed his discovery of North America not to luck or bravery, but to birds, boards and lumps of stone. Let's turn now to how these extraordinary Vikings got their bloodthirsty names. Many early Scandinavian leaders took or were given epithets that said something about who they were, from the fairly obvious Gorm the Old to the more puzzling Ivar the Boneless. Legendary Viking hero Ragnar Lothbrok, whose life we'll be exploring in Part 2, received his epithet from the leather breeches he wore. Eric Bloodaxe, however, falls comfortably into the first category. On the death of their father, Harald Finehair, the first king of Norway, his sons quickly set about trying to consolidate their own positions by murdering each other. The first victim was Bjorn the seaman, who was surrounded while having a drink at Tonsborg by Erik and his men. According to Harald Harfager's saga, Bjorn and his friends put up a good fight, but in the end Erik killed him. That didn't make Erik too popular in that part of the country, and another half-brother Olaf took over. He now tried to make himself king of Eastern Norway, supported by another half-brother, Sigrid, which rather annoyed Eric. The three men met in battle just outside Tunsberg, where Erik notched up another two dead brothers and gained the Latin title Brother Slayer, or the rather more visual Viking title Bloodaxe. Sadly for Eric, his run of fratricidal luck was about to run out. In 933, the youngest brother Harkon returned from England and ousted Eric who was forced to flee to Northumbria, where he became king with his capital at Jorvik, which is today York. He died in battle, as someone called Bloodaxe probably should, at Stainmore in 954. Harkon, meanwhile, became king of all Norway and received the much nicer title Harkon the Good. As for Ivar the Boneless, the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok tells a strange tale of his birth to explain how he attained his unusual sobriquet. It was said that Ragnar's second wife Aslaug was a sorceress, blessed or perhaps cursed with the power of foresight. On the night of her wedding, when Ragnar came to her, she warned him that she had had a dark vision of the future and they should not consummate their marriage for three nights, saying, Three nights together. But yet apart shall we bide, nor worship the gods as yet. From my son this would save a lasting harm, for boneless is he that thou wouldst now beget. Ragnar, ever the Viking, would not wait, however, and that night Aslaug fell pregnant with their child, Ivar. When the child was born, he was born with gristle in the place of his bones, as his mother had predicted, and hence was known from then on as Ivar the Boneless. It has recently been suggested that this extraordinary tale represents an attempt to explain the birth of a child with a serious genetic disorder, perhaps the brittle bone disease osteogenesis imperfecta, which left Ivar unable to walk. The tale of Ivar's inability to walk only occurs in much later sagas, however. It is not mentioned by contemporary chroniclers who might be expected to have commented on the sight of a paraplegic Viking warlord being carried into battle on his shield had they seen it. In the very brutal, practical world of 9th century Scandinavia it must also be doubted that so handicapped a child would have survived, or amongst a warrior elite even been allowed to survive, let alone to go on to lead Viking armies into battle and carve out kingdoms for themselves. Indeed, the saga story may simply be a later attempt to explain a name that at the time of its creation, several hundred years before, was itself a misunderstanding. The Old Norse, Inbeinlausi, boneless, or legless, may have been a misreading or mishearing of Inbenlausi, the childless one. Or perhaps even the Latin exosos, hateful, was misheard as exos, boneless. Ivar certainly gained a reputation that would have made him hateful in the eyes of many of those he crossed, both Christian and Viking alike, whilst even the tale of the Sons of Ragnar says Ivar was childless, not due to any genetic problem, but because of the way he was, with no lust or love, but not short on cunning or cruelty. That was The Interesting Bits, written and presented by Justin Pollard, with music by Constance Pollard. The show was produced by T and Stuart Murray.